Selling Asia's Stories. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today, we are super excited to be joined by Brendan Howe, the VP and General Manager of Blockchain at VMware. Brendan, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show and doing this. How are you? I'm good, Michael. Thank you for having me. It's a privilege to be here. So can you tell me again where you are? I'm based in Palo Alto, California. I am currently on the East Coast in Massachusetts. Oh, you're in Massachusetts. Even better. So I have to actually apologize to you publicly for just making you stay up so late to do this. <laughs> I really appreciate it. I really appreciate it. That's can you give us some of your background for context and, and then we can jump into the main part of this conversation? Sure, I'd be happy to. You know, I've been at VMware a couple of years. My career has really been in infrastructure, software services. I've spent a number of years with uh, network technology companies, storage companies, application companies, companies trying to make the journey from traditional infrastructure to cloud services. And I feel like I've sort of touched all of those things at, at some uh, level throughout my career. I, I think the one thing I would say about my career that I think is different than most is I've spent a lot of it involved with early stage products, early stage companies, emerging products, trying to change the game, be disruptive or find new markets. So to some extent, this opportunity at VMware, even though VMware is a big company, is a, a very frequent type of role that I've had in my career of trying to figure out how to teach an old dog some new tricks, right? <laughs> and, and, and find a new market and find a new value prop and then teach the company how to monetize it and how to scale it. Can I ask you, you said you were in Massachusetts. Are you originally from Massachusetts, by the way? Yes, I grew up in Massachusetts, actually. And, uh, you know, the one positive I'd say about the pandemic is it afforded the opportunity to spend some time because I have a, a bulk of my family and friends still in Massachusetts. So, you know, just like we're seeing right now, these remote sessions work just as well from Massachusetts as they do from California. <laughs> they do indeed. Yeah, so I had the opportunity to spend the summer here. I'm about to go back to California, but it's been a great break. It was nice to get away. I don't even know where to start with this part of the conversation. So have you heard of Nantasket Beach? I sure have. <laughs> I grew up in Nantasket Beach, and I love the summers in Massachusetts. To me, they're almost like idyllic, and I have this sort of halcyon image of waking up in the morning when it turns 65 degrees and walking down to the Boston Bay or to the Atlantic Ocean, even though it was freezing cold, it still felt like summer to me. You can know, you know what this feeling is like in Massachusetts, yes? I do, I do. In fact, we're on Cape Cod um, and we have, I have the ability to wake up in the morning and walk down to the beach on Buzzards Bay yes. and test the water and it's been a fabulous way to spend a summer. That is awesome. I've never been as jealous as I am right now. <laughs> 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 but good for you. Let's talk about, so I like this idea of always being involved on the edge. So when I joined Morgan Stanley in 1987, there were no computers on everybody's desk. We had a computer room and I had to get a five and a quarter inch floppy disk, which was the mm -hmm. boot disk for the IBM AT or XT that I was using. Yeah. And I basically yeah. built my entire career similar to you saying, you know, if we have technology that's new and we figure out how to use it, we can just make things way more productive and yeah. did that for 20 something years. So I, I feel like I understand that. What is it about you that you think draws you to the new? Is there an entrepreneurial spirit inside of you as well, you think? Yeah, there is. You know, I, I, it, it's funny. It's not for the faint of heart. This stuff is hard. You know, yeah. when you go in, it, it sounds, you know, really uh, interesting. Uh, it, it sounds 
so revolutionary. But the fact of the matter is trying to figure something out where there's been no path paved, especially if you're doing it inside a company that has a lot of paths already paved. Right. Um, it's not for the faint of heart. You have to be persistent and you have to be curious and you have to take chances. You have to fail and you have to iterate. And there's just something about that combination that always appealed to me. Right. You know, I joined um, some young startups pretty early in my career and always enjoyed the aspect of being part of an effort that was trying to do something different. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that like anything, there, there were really fun and good days and there were some hard days. Uh, but overall, I've always enjoyed it enough and, and, and viewed the challenge as a huge learning opportunity. So I've stuck with it. Yeah. I mean, I like to say that everything's sexy when it works, but when it doesn't work, it can be really troubling. <laughs> and yeah, and I think most people underestimate just the difficulty, even inside a big company. And I was talking to a woman yesterday about building something inside of British Telecom. You know, if it dies inside of a big company, it's just as painful as if it dies on its own. Oh, it's absolutely. just really hard work. Yeah. I remember, and you know, I remember in the, I, I went to a, a business school in New York, probably about the time you were at Goldman, I was at NYU. And I remember take a, taking an internal venturing course. Right. And, you know, the things that you learn it, it, trying to do this inside a big company is you, you can't be too early to try to plug into the machine. Yeah. Right. Because the machine is so big and powerful, it'll kill you if you're not ready. Right. And you really have to know, you have to navigate through that scenario of when is the right time to scale and what are the circumstances that define scale opportunities? And it's not quite what it first appears to be in a lot of cases, right? Just because the product works, just because you land a customer or two, doesn't mean it's ready to go mainstream. Because when you have an organization like we do at VMware, where you have thousands of salespeople and thousands of partners, tens and hundreds of thousands of customers you know, the nuances across them can kill you if you're not ready to handle them. Yeah. Great entrepreneurs are always looking for market gaps and you have to make this decision is, is that gap big enough to fill with a business or is it just a gap that doesn't need to get filled? And is yep. it easy to monetize? That's right. And I want to, I want to share an anecdote with you about timing. In 1998 and 1999, I was working with an entrepreneur in Tokyo building a business called Imahima, which means, are you free now? Right. So I lived in Japan for 22 years and it was the first mobile social network built on the NTT Docomo mobile phone platform. And he patented the social, the mobile check-in and a bunch of other things, but it was just way too early. We had 500,000 people on that platform, but it died because it was just way too early. In the end, those patents actually got sold to Facebook in 2012, but it didn't matter anymore, right? Because that ship had yep. sailed. Anyway. Yep. When you sit back and look at this opportunity with blockchain and distributed ledger technology, what was it about that that said to you, oh, there's definitely a gap here and we need to fill it with this tech? Yeah. You know, it was funny. When I first learned about VMware's interest here, you know, my first thought was, you know, goodness, VMware's actually getting into the cryptocurrency business. Give me a break. Um, and and um, after I got over that laugh, you know, I started thinking about it and what really appealed to me was that the opportunity with distributed ledger, um, and, and by the way, we, we often kid that we probably picked the wrong name calling it blockchain. Yeah. It's, it's some of the technology being used, but, but it's, it's very different than a public chain. It's very different than public crypto. You know, right. we're, we're, we're solving different problems. We're, we're actually solving a distributed ledger set of problems. And, and what appealed to me 
in, in what I thought was a great opportunity for the company is if you just step away from the technology for a minute, this is entirely consistent with VMware's core business, which is to be an application platform for the enterprise. We manage the infrastructure and the efficiency of using that infrastructure to build and deploy and run applications. That, right. That's what VMware's core business is. And what, what would it matter if it were a centralized versus distributed versus decentralized application? The principle is the same. Now, the technology to build decentralized applications is very different because it's a really a new data sharing model that has to ensure trust, it has to ensure privacy, and it has to have scale elements such that it can run a lot of what people would consider mission-critical business apps as part of that. So what, what really got my attention with VMware's interest here was I thought it was actually pretty consistent with what the company's strengths are. Right. And it was enough of a new technology base where it would be a very interesting journey to help the company figure out how to build and scale such a new stack. In a way, in a way it reminds me, I'm not saying it's exactly equivalent, but it reminds me of when Red Hat started selling Linux implementations in the sense that Linux was a freely distributed version of Unix and nobody really saw it as a business model, but because it was a layer that companies could use and then build applications on top of, yeah. companies at scale, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, all of the data centers that we ran and all of the, the machine rooms that we ran started running on Linux and on, on Linux machines. And I kind of yeah. see this the same way because back then people didn't believe it. Now crypto has its own different background, but in yeah. the same way on distributed ledger technology, and you'll see that I kind of default to DLT as opposed to blockchain because Blockchain yep. has its own nuances, right? That are different than, like, as you said, other types of DLT. But yep. I see that as well as companies are going to have to go out and adopt this. And I do feel like it's a 10 to 15, maybe 20 year process of embedding this into the financial system. Can you talk about how that's going to work as well? Yeah. So first off, I think your Linux analogy is an appropriate one. And I just think about how fast that went, yeah. you know, what it, once it became uh, more readily available right. to teams yep. to implement quickly uh, and, and really change the game, it, it, the adoption rate was just, you know, almost unimaginable. Yeah. You know, I think with, with this one, if you're thinking about DLT from the context of financial services, which by the way, we are, everyone is, it's not the only vertical or only segment that we look at, but it's certainly one that garners a lot of attention because of the the size and the scope. The fundamental opportunity and challenge is you're helping companies essentially reinvent back office workflows that in some cases are decades old. And, and it's not just that they're decades old, they're, they're highly regulated decades old platforms. So it's not quite as simple as just going in and ripping up one and, and replacing it with another and changing a, a centralized cobalt database with a decentralized <laughs> ledger platform and go from there, right? It's it's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. So if I, if we do our job well, along with our partners, we provide a simple to deploy and simple to manage platform that allows them to focus on the workflow elements of the use case, not the infrastructure it has to run on. Right. So our job is to just greatly simplify that, bring efficiencies to that and bring scale to that so they can really focus on 
How do you eliminate manual steps? How do you eliminate reconciliation checks? How do you eliminate delay in settlement and in clearing yep. and in fulfillment and on and on it goes in ways that they can cut cost and time out of their business workflows? That that's what I see is the opportunity. That said, you know, regulated regulated environments, new technologies requires predictable steps. It requires a lot of documentation. We help our customers talk through the the architecture with regulators. We help our customers to talk through those architectures with their boards because, you know, these use cases generate a fair amount of board level interest. This is the heart and soul of how these companies run. And in this type of replacement um, technology strategy is not one that they take lightly. So you mentioned settlements and clearing, and I think this is really interesting, right? Most people that interact with the financial services businesses don't understand what happens in the back end. One of the greatest things about working at Morgan Stanley was they forced us to understand what happens. They, they gave us a book that was called After the Trade, and they made us read the whole thing because they understood clearly, even back in 1987, that you could trade anything you wanted, but if it couldn't get settled or cleared, yeah. it didn't really matter. I'm curious, because this is kind of a two-sided market, right? You have all these big financial institutions, and then an institution that maybe most people haven't heard of, the DTCC, right? The Depository Trust and Clearing Company, do you deal with them as well and their CEO, Mike Bodson, to work in some of this technology too? Yeah, we do. We're engaged uh, with them. I'm on uh, the digital asset board along with Mike, so I've had the opportunity to meet him. But you're exactly right. You know, it's, it's not just the front end uh, service offerings that, that are part of the trade settlement food chain. Right. There are a lot of players, a lot of back office players that are involved in the steps of, of settlement and ultimately custody in fulfillment. And that ecosystem, I think, will probably grow over time as yeah. you open up opportunities for multi-party transactions and in, in direct peer-to-peer -peer transactions, it's entirely possible that that ecosystem will greatly expand, not contract. What was it like logistically internally at VMware when you had to set up this team? In other words, you know, when we started building new technologies at Goldman, we had to go out and hire like whole new teams of people because that the core competencies that were necessary to build the new things we were building weren't there. Yeah. I'm just always curious about big company internals because... Yeah. You know, there's always this sense of this is how we've always done it. What was it like getting all a whole new group of people in and then getting them involved in the culture of VMware? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And we're on the journey. So it's not a, you know, now that we're done with it, here's what it looks like. No, no, no. I'll give you, I'll give you an updated view of the progress, I guess. Thank you. So, you know, one thing I'd say right from the get-go is what was kind of neat about this particular project is it started in the VMware research team. Okay. Uh, you know, VMware historically has done a lot of acquisitions when it wanted to enter a new product segment or a new market. Yes. It hasn't typically been the spin-in type where it would start an incubation venture and born it into a product, right? So, so this was one of the, I think, more unique cases that VMware's had in its, its rich history of, of product leadership. Because it came out of the research team, and by the way, the researchers that VMware amongst the brightest people I've ever known and ever yeah. worked with, just amazing technologists. But that said, you know, when you work in research and you build technology, you don't build manageability of products. You don't build longevity tests of products. You build features of products right. as proof of concept that the, that the approach is the right approach. 
So we had terrifically powerful technology that had to be uh, rounded into an enterprise grade product yeah. is the way I thought about it when I started. And to do that, you have to build a team of people wrapped around it that know how to do that well. Now, the challenge with doing that with a distributed ledger is, well, is that a blockchain skill set? Is it a distributed computing skill set? Is it a storage skill set? Is it a quantum computing skill set? Right. Is it an enterprise application skill set? Who do you hire? <laughs> right. Because you know, you you meet a lot of people that have blockchain in their background, blockchain in their resume, and they don't know the first thing about enterprise products. Right. And and so much of what we're building are non-functional requirements of resiliency and recoverability and scale and and deployment ease and things that you know you don't you don't concern yourself with if you're if you're in a public blockchain you know uh, ethereum environment you you wouldn't think about that stuff it's just not it's not you know a standard course so we had to put together a team of people that understood distributed computing distributed state and the good news is there is some of that expertise of vmware vmware's long been in the business of distributed nodes and interconnectivity of right. nodes and there was plenty to leverage there, uh, but we had to think about it differently. Uh, I'd say our team is probably two thirds from the outside of VMware, one third internal people that have joined the team. So it's a nice mix of of one versus the other. And and you know the culture. I, I I'm fortunate in that I work for a company with a great culture. So we didn't have to go invent an, a, a great culture. What we had to do is build the same culture into a brand new team that was doing something very different. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, in general doing what we did um, has been really exciting. You know, you, you always run into the impedance of, well, this isn't the number one priority in the company. So why do you need it? Or, well, this isn't the way we do things at VMware. You need to do it this way. Right. But I found the company and the environment to be very curious and very understanding of the fact that we're going after a different beast. We're building a different beast. And sometimes the rules need to bend a little bit yeah. to accommodate the range of what we're trying to build. When you go out and sell these products to potential clients, do you feel like their world is moving as fast as your world is in the sense that they're ready and waiting for this tech and just hoping someone can provide it to them at scale? I mean, you talked about this. You can't, this cannot be run by like some startup with like four guys in a basement and, you know, three ladies in the Ukraine programming. It's just not going to happen yeah. because of the resiliency and the enterprise grade necessity of this type of technology. Can you talk about like, is the rest of the world up to speed yet with you or? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, my, my gut first answer is I think they're trying to move faster than we are. I, I you know, it's been an amazing if I had to net out what I hear from customers, every one of these initiatives are part of their, their fundamental digital transformation strategy. And I know that's an overused term. Yeah. I, I don't like using it because you know everything you pick up has digital transformation. And yeah. It's used so often, I, I think half, half the use is misapplied or not yeah. understood. Right. But, but I can tell you, honestly, that's the way our customers talk. These are digital transformation initiatives. Yeah. And, and it's some prominent themes of just tokenization of assets, digitization of assets that enable a much wider transaction model and exchange model than they've ever had. So what I find is 
the, the pandemic just exploded the pace of having to do that well. Yeah. It, it, it was already moving quick. And then the pandemic hits the world and everyone works remote and in the dynamics of working remote change and the whole notion of digital, digital transformation stepped up a notch. It, it didn't slow down. It actually greatly accelerated. So, so the driving force of the use cases, I think, is, is way, way ahead of where we are and where even the technology is. Now, that said, our customers are looking for us as a trusted advisor to co-innovate, right? They, they want us to come in and, and show how we can help them. You know, this isn't a business, at least not yet, where, you know, there's an RFP and there's a bake-off and there's three presentations and four demos yeah. and the best demo wins and away you go and you get the order and you, you support them and you're done. This is a co-innovation agenda of how can I take advantage of this technology? Hey, you guys at VMware are building these great things. What can it do to help me expedite you know, data availability in the following way? How can I deploy this in a way that's more consistent with the way I deploy other things? And we end up spending a very, very deep innovation uh, time with our customers, helping them figure it out. And, and I suspect that's going to stay that way for a while. And by the yeah. way, that's a good thing for us. We're, we're big on co-innovation. We have strengths there and it's part of our company culture. And we want to stay right there as long as we can. But this also gets back to the part of the conversation we were having at the beginning where because you're on the edge and it's not a fully established and a full thought out product. Yeah. It means that the sales is much more fun than, like you said, just having a bake off and here's the RFP and okay, it's one, two, three, five people because our mandate says we have to ask five people. Like what you're doing, this idea of co-innovation is what makes it fun to get up every day and go to work. Is that fair? Absolutely fair. Absolutely fair. And I think anyone in our team, in our extended team would probably echo the same thing. I know I'm putting words in their mouth, but I think in general, you know, what, what we all like is the fact that we are very active participants in our customer's use case definition. Right. Right. As opposed to, right. you know, how do we learn more about what they're trying to do? Our customers are saying, help me understand what I'm trying to do better than I do. And then help me understand how your technology can make it even better. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing better than a sales conversation that goes off in a different direction, but a better direction than the intended one, if you know what I mean. So you sit down with a customer because you're co-innovating. They're saying, yeah. we think we want to do this. And you say, have you considered that with your product? And they think, oh, wait a second, that could actually be transformational. Can we do yeah, that? Absolutely. And then you work through that process. And it's so different, like you said, from that RFP where here's the thing we want to do. You're like, here are the things we can do. How does this make yeah. all of your product and your product suite so much more important and powerful? Yeah. And, it, and it absolutely changes the way we think about our product. You exactly. Know, there's been a lot of side effect discussions within our product strategy meetings that start to introduce, you know, we're thinking about it wrong. Or, you know, remember that comment the customer made about this element of data recoverability? Well, the way we're thinking about it actually won't work that way. So we have to rethink the whole notion of how would we implement the, the, the feature or some element of the subsystem in a way that would be more consistent with how they're trying to do it. Yeah, and that iterative process is so great for product development because as you go out to new clients or new potential clients, you get smarter every time you go out because you have all these yeah. new ideas and new sort of insights into how it can work. And that's kind of cool. Yep. Yeah, absolutely.
So can we talk about some things that are getting implemented? I'm very, obviously, I come out of a finance background, so anything that happens in the stock market, the bond market, the futures market, all that stuff is interesting to me. Can you talk about what's happening in Asia with some of the implementations that you're making or have already made in Australia and Malaysia and places like that? I can. You know, it, it has been amazing. Um, you know, Asia seems to be a pretty hot spot for the distributed ledger business. And, mm. you know, it's such a, uh, it, my my uh, United States residency will play out here of, you know, such a traditional mindset is, well, we're a U.S. company, you know, we'll start with a U.S. customer and then you broaden the reach and then you go after business in Europe, you go after business in Asia Pacific and right. away you go. Um, our first two customers were Asian use cases, Asian companies. Um, so we started on that side of the world right from the get-go. It was, it was unusual. And it's just, I don't think there's a good explanation other than the fact that that's where they were. And they decided <laughs> to do it. And we were glad to engage in a way we go. The, the two, you know, we have, we have a handful of public references at this point. We have lots of engagements some of which aren't ready to talk yet, but four of them have publicly announced uh, two of them in Asia. So I can I can touch briefly on both of those. You probably have heard of them. I'd, I'd say the most pronounced, and, and I would argue perhaps the most well-known blockchain, enterprise blockchain use case in the world is the Australian Securities Exchange project to replace the clearing and settlement platform Chess with their Chess Plus, their next generation Chess built on a distributed ledger. I think they first announced their intentions to do that back in um, 2016, 2017. It was quite a while back. And VMware got engaged in the project uh, probably in late 2018 as an initial start. And, and what they're doing is uh, typical of a, a trusted data sharing model of they're trying to, to uh, expedite and drive great efficiency into the steps involved in trade settlement and clearing. Right. Uh, a lot of manual steps, a lot of reconciliation, a lot of parties involved. The contracts are multi-party contracts, they're complicated, and they're trying to build a platform that can greatly expedite that. And it's distributed ledgers, how that's done through smart contract languages. So we've been involved in that project now in my two years at VMware, you know, night and day, it's a very, very significant project. But one of the most interesting things I find about ASX is not only are they doing that, which is, is, is highly complex and highly regulated of a use case as it comes. This is trade and settlement for the Australian Securities Exchange. It is just, it's prime time, complex, you know, gotta be, gotta be the best breed product in the world to do that. But they also had a vision to say, this platform that we're building as a distributed ledger has reached far beyond just trade in, in settlement in our company. So much so that they've offered the platform as a service through a subsidiary called DLT Solutions. I love it. To the local Australian market for customers who have need for distributed ledger services. So it sort of speaks to the fact that they had a great vision. They applied that great vision to a really complex and hard use case for the long run. But while they did that said, uh, there's a lot more to it than just that one use case. And we're gonna leverage all the work that we're doing and introduce new opportunities for our business and new enablement for our customers to build their own applications to take advantage of it. I think it's a pretty neat set of circumstances and I'm sure you'll hear a lot more from them 
in in the months to come about how they're doing in that journey. So I would love to actually get them on the show as well, because it's interesting to hear about it from your perspective, but I always like to hear the other side as well, right? Because yep. as we said, when you go to the client, there's this iterative process. They have ideas, you have ideas, and somewhere in the middle, those things meet. It would be so awesome to have a conversation with them to see what it looked like from their perspective too. Anyway, so tell me about another implementation that you've done. Yeah, I would encourage you to talk to them, by the way. Yeah. Uh, they're good people, and I'm sure they would talk to you. Um, you know, the other one that's um, a public reference for us, and I think a pretty exciting project is Bursa Malaysia. Yeah. And, and theirs um, is a early stage but important step in a proof of concept for de dematerialization. They're using a dematerialization of uh, warrants as a first step in the journey of how they can greatly expedite and make more efficient the settlement of warrants through the use of a distributed ledger. And I think they'll follow some of the same types of trends that we've seen with others, which is digitization efforts of a lot of their assets that today exist through paper and exist through processes that can be digitized and greatly expedited as a function of the ledger. So that was just announced as a proof of concept, I think about three weeks ago, four weeks ago. And we're very engaged in that project and expect to, to be um, uh, a key contributor of them being quite successful. And I think that they'll find lots of uses of the technology beyond this dematerialization starting use case that they can take advantage of. Right. I mean, that's one of the benefits of implementing something small first, right? Start small, think big, get big fast. The idea is let's see how it works. Let's see if it works. And if it does, as you said, you have to make this decision. How can I get this to scale quickly? Yep. And that's a great example that's of that. exactly right. Yep. I do think a lot of companies think along the lines of start with a POC and, and validate the business assumptions that go into it and then go from there. And I think that's a pretty orderly way to think about it. And one that, that fits our, our, our approach to go to market quite well. Yeah. And it definitely works. Look, I would make the case as a resident of Asia for the past 30 years, that it's not surprising to me at all, actually, that some of your first implementations are out here. And I think part of the reason why is that because they're starting so far behind, in their technological implementation and the necessity for them to, as you say, and I hate the term as well, but to digitally transform, that they wanna use the newest and the most forward thinking technology. And that's what this DLT and blockchain stuff is for them. And their regulators actually, I was talking to somebody about the Thailand regulators yesterday. The regulators here have been very open-minded as well. You must deal with regulators all the time in the building out of these things. And the regulators here are, are pretty awesome. So you're, you're smiling, tell me why. Yeah, we do. And, and we found them, you know, it, it's funny, it, you meet people who deal with regulators and it's, it, it always induces the eye roll, you know, <laughs> the, the regulators. But I found them to be pretty reasonable people. The, the challenge is explaining the technology to them in a way that is understandable from a business perspective, which right. is always the challenge in the technology business. They don't care about how it works, they care about what it does. Right. Um, but we, we do spend time, we help our customers do that, is the way I'd summarize it. We spend a lot of time with our customers, helping them come up with the uh, ability to concisely describe how the system works in a way that the regulators are comfortable with the approach. And to me, again, it's just so interesting. I dealt with the regulators a lot when I was in Tokyo and 
I never found it negative. I always found it fascinating, to be fair. Yep. So there's a guy named Stefan Debetz who runs a company called Elevated Returns. And I'm only using him as a reference point so people can look it up and figure out what they're doing. But they are running the first tokenization of a real estate asset in Thailand through a company called Xpring Capital. And I think it's a really good example of a bunch of different things, not the least of which is using distributed ledger technology to tokenize a, a physical asset, but then also fractionalize it as well. And I'm curious how you look at that market too, particularly in the context of decentralized finance and the fintech world. Yeah. Oh, I think that, that these areas are immense opportunities. Uh, you know, we, we see applicability for this technology far beyond even financial services. Yeah. Um, we've had a fair amount of interest in supply chain, for example, oh, fairly traditional supply chain yep. that has administrative steps that are cumbersome and inefficient and at times very wasteful. Uh, and and, and uh, have elements of fraud and and, and um, errors in, in processing that lead to a lot of liability. Um, so um, the, the whole notion of digitizing uh, non-traditional assets in a way that they can be traded, transacted, sold, transferred, uh, better managed, distributed, redistributed, any of that type of workflow, I think is an immense opportunity. Um, uh, that this technology can play a key role in. You know, decentralized finance is a very prominent theme and step. I think it's been a bit clouded in the industry with all of the uh, regulatory headwind, you know, with a lot of the early adopters not really being, uh, being closely aligned with the regulatory communities. That, that never leads to a good outcome. And right. That's been a bit of a headwind. But the decentralization of financial assets, the digitization of of assets, including currencies, the central bank digital currency initiatives that most every bank, every government, every country has these days. Yes. Um, you know, the, the, the wave of NFTs and what that represents for marketplace transactions, uh, enterprise companies looking to provide an enterprise coin as loyalty programs and as ways of, of uh, trading assets. Uh, you know, there's so many different possibilities of where these use cases can go. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. I mean, I've been around long enough to remember when the internet itself was a place where only illegal things happened. And you're right. The early adopters may be a little bit shady. And I think it's the same thing with the implementation of every new technology. They try to find a place where nobody else is operating. The only problem with that is that if it actually is useful, then big institutions are definitely going to come in and adopt that technology. And we see that same thing, same exact thing happening in the blockchain, and I would posit that it's actually happening faster. If I had to draw a graph of the implementation, it would just, if, if the internet kind of went like this, you can see it, people can't, that blockchain's kind of going like this. Because people know, and people that have been around for a while and have seen technology changes have said, wait a second, we know this is going to work, let's do this as fast as humanly possible. And yeah, CBDCs, right, central bank digital currencies, are definitely going to be a thing. And in the same way, right, where in the old days... <laughs> only criminals had had Bitcoin. In a way, it's really going to be only criminals will have cash, right? Because companies like Merkle Science are going out there and saying, if it happens on a chain, we can see it. And then we can build a business around trust and reliability because we can tell you, we don't know who it is, but we know the account number that's associated with illicit transactions, even if it was six transactions ago, and if that's the case, we can help you deal with only verified and trustable entities 
as opposed to non-trusted entities. And that, again, is like you were talking about. It's not directly related to finance and fintech, but it's peripheral to that and definitely supports that whole process. Is that fair as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, a big starting premise that we always had with our, our, me our mechanism of consensus was that we needed to do it in an efficient way. Uh, we need to do it in a way that, that wasn't going to uh, uh, induce uh, carbon consumption that is record setting while we're right. trying to, you know, fuel a, a carbon free environment. That's not going to work. No. Um, so you do that through proof of stake versus proof of work approaches and things like that. But a big part of what we uh, used with our Byzantine fault tolerant was the notion of protecting against malicious intent. So it's it's not just about failed nodes, it's about malicious nodes. Right. And how do you drive consensus in a way that you can protect against that? And that's a, a foundational principle of what our distributed ledger is all about that I think can lead to some pretty interesting outcomes when we talk through the use cases that you just mentioned. Yeah. You also brought up this collateralization of currency, which I think is really interesting in the context of sort of inflationary and deflationary forces, right? In other words, if I can collateralize any asset and tokenize it, and I can own a piece of it, then it kind of eliminates the possibility of inflation because as that asset goes up in value, the token that's associated with it rises in value as well. And there should be a one delta there. There should be. And if there isn't over time, that arbitrage will close. But this idea that things can get collateralized and provide protection against future price shocks is also fascinating, no? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. I mean, that's an interesting angle that I guess I don't think much about, but you're right. I mean, it's the, it's the speed and the instantaneous nature of the asset that make it so different. And, and you can also think about, you know, the, the real-time nature of understanding where the assets are. You know, one of my favorite use cases that I heard mentioned once was in, in this height of the pandemic, this um, stimulus payment. Well, imagine having digital currency as the source of stimulants where you could actually assign them to be local by requirement. They're, they're designed to be local aid, so they can only be spent locally. And imagine where you could get minute by minute readouts of where people are spending the money, what restaurants and what towns and you know what, what, uh, what uh, luxury items and what stores and you could actually go so far as to control the consumption models to be very directed at where you want that money to go. Uh, and I remember the first time I heard that use case, I thought, oh my God, that's a fantastic use of a digital currency for, for, for human good, right? It, it's the intent of what the stimulus is, is meant to be, which is aid to local businesses in need. And, and this would be a way that actually not only would track it, but you could arguably enforce it. But yeah, and it also removes graft from the, I mean, anytime there's a trillion dollar, multi-hundred billion dollar bill in any country, let's be fair, it's not just in any particular country, there's so much graft associated with it. And if you could remove that as well, it just takes the efficiency of the movement of currency and money to another level. And this whole idea, like you said, because the tokens are programmable, they can only do the things that you allow them to do. And they can have specific use cases for specific instances and it actually, in a way, makes money much more powerful, right? Like you could actually tokenize and collateralize food into the future. So that even if the prices of food, if the price of food rises, 
you don't have to worry about it because the inflation's been disintermediated by the collateralization of that using cryptocurrency. I mean, we could get deep into yeah, the weeds exactly. on this, but that's awesome, right? Yes, I couldn't agree more. Okay, look, it's late. And just because I'm jealous that you're in Massachusetts doesn't mean that I get to keep you up all night. <laughs> I really appreciate you doing this. Brendan Howe, the yeah, VP and general manager of blockchain at VMware. This was really awesome. And thank you so much for your time. Yeah, Michael, thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you and I hope we can talk again.